Hi, and welcome to the Working Tools Podcast, a casual conversation about Freemasonry. Ladies and gentlemen, brethren all, welcome to the Working Tools Podcast, a casual conversation around Freemasonry. First, it's important to note that our thoughts and opinions are our own and do not reflect those of our Grand Lodge or respective craft or concordant bodies. Please connect with us and ask questions via our website at theworkingtoolspodcast.com. Hi, and welcome to the Working Tools Podcast, and thank you for joining us for the continuation of the myths of surrounding Freemasonry in a conversation with Right Worshipful Brother Trevor McEwen, and Right Worshipful Brother, no, Very Worshipful Brother Matt Apple, and myself, Steve Chung, here in Kelowna, B.C., um, Okay, so when uh, we last left off, Trevor, we were talking about, um, what was that last Historic minute? Myths. Historic myths. So let's continue on that. Well, uh, one other of interest to our American brethren is uh, there was a widely mm-hmm. uh, promoted myth that George Washington had renounced Freemasonry in his later years. Uh, this was widely believed uh, in the years, uh, let me rephrase that, widely believed in non-Masonic circles um, in the years following his death. Uh, there was a, um, I believe a, a Baptist minister had, had written a, a history of, of George Washington, um, uh, a fairly mythological one in its own right, uh, in which he talks about uh, Washington having having denied Freemasonry, and this took great currency in uh, in the anti Masonic circles uh, previous to the American Civil War, uh, and will be revived every now and then. You'll still come across it in anti Masonic websites. Now, most of the myths that I've been researching uh, are ones that have been used as ammunition by my anti Masonic or Masonophobic groups or individuals. Uh, but I'm sure there are a lot of myths about Freemasonry that just your average man on the street believes about Freemasonry. Uh, such things as we are sworn to protect each other, uh, even in the face of, of, of uh, such things as treason and murder and what have you, uh, which of course is patently untrue. That. Uh, I mentioned earlier that, that they believe, there are still many, I'm sure, who believe that to become a Freemason, they have to wait to be asked. So I, I, you both may have heard other stories from non-Masons that you've sort of looked puzzled at. Well, I've, uh, I've never heard that you actually had to wait to be asked. Uh, I've always heard that you've had to ask um, and that they weren't allowed to ask you, right? That, that was the... The big thing is that, you know, we weren't allowed to solicit members, right? And so you could, um, when I first joined, for example, and I talked about it, um, because I had been in Malay and whatnot, I had a different opinion that, you know, I should be able to recruit. And they're going, well, no, you can't recruit. You know, you can't be caught asking them, but you can su- make suggestions. You can talk about what you're doing and how much fun you're having, et cetera, et cetera. 
but you you need to encourage them to ask. But then the really funny thing is they said, as soon as they ask, you need to give them the, get, hold up. Are you sure this is what you want? Really think about this and actually send them away to see if they will come back again, because if they're really, truly interested, they will continue to ask. And I thought, well, that one's a little if somebody, sick. if somebody told me, yeah, you, you know, I don't think so, you know, go away, you know, and pushed me back, I would go, I don't feel very welcome there. Right. You yeah. know? Yeah. And <clears throat> so I was always wrestling with that one in my mind. Right. But that's what I heard when I first joined. Here's of one course, I heard. Hanging around for 20 years now, I've learned differently, but. <laughs> Some, something I've heard, and this is not necessarily from members who have joined in this jurisdiction, but I have heard once or twice there were those who figured, now how did he, how did he phrase it? He would always blackball a potential candidate uh, because he wanted, he figured that if they really wanted to join, they'd come back. Mm. What is he thinking? No, you know. Yeah. Uh, and I don't know if this was just this one brother uh, in conversation or if this was a widely held belief in some certain Masonic circles. He was probably the secretary and didn't want to deal with any more members. That could be it. That could be it. Uh, I don't believe, uh, I don't believe it is a myth. I don't believe we should solicit members, but there are ways of inviting. Um, but we can't, as I say, the reason for non-solicitation, in my mind, goes right back to both our practices and our ritual. In practice, I can't say to you, hi, I want to invite you to join my group, but you first have to be submitted to an examination uh, and everyone has to vote in favor of you. So you may not get in. So I can't really, I don't believe I can invite somebody who could then be rejected. It can be, it can be a very qualified invitation, but is with such qualification that in my mind, it's not really anymore a, an invitation. The, the other part has to do with the actual ritual, which says that you that you came of your own free will and accord. So if I, I turn to a buddy and say, listen, I got a really great thing going on in my life, and I can tell you a fair amount about it, but it's something that I think you might be interested in, in joining. And then and then say, but I because of, and you'll discover this once you join, I'm not allowed to tell uh, to and invite you, but that's what I'm doing. You know, I just dance around with it, but maybe that's just an intellectual dance in my head and doesn't, doesn't really mean anything. Maybe I am in fact inviting. I don't know. Well, I, I, I don't know. It's, I think I, I never look at it as really inviting when I dance around that conversation with people. I look at it more as uh, I'm uh, piquing their interest and, um, uh, I'm there to answer their questions as well, right? Um, the moment he says, oh, okay, that's interesting. How do I join? I'm handing them a petition. I'm not sending them away to come back. Yeah, yeah. It's like, well, the iron is hot. Thank you very much. Yeah, and there's a, and there, there's sort of an extension to this myth where, you know, we can't advertise or, or be out there and all that sort of stuff. And there's... I mean, it's it's sort of silly, you know. If we're not advertising, should we not have the the square and compass outside the our our temples and all that sort of stuff? But um, the Grand Lodge of Washington actually has an advertising campaign that we used for for a little, little while recently, and uh, I've maintained that 
you know, if nothing else, the Grand Lodge should be putting out an ad on Facebook or in the paper or whatever that just says, even if it's not, you know, join our join our lodges, it's just happy Thanksgiving from the Freemasons of Washington. You know, just a, hey, we still exist. <laughs> uh, institutional advertising, I think, is always good. I have a, a newspaper, the Vancouver Province from the 1880s, I think. I have it framed up uh, in my office wall uh, because the front page story was a um, pretty much most of the front page was talking about a cornerstone laying, big news, small village at the time, Vancouver. Uh, but more importantly, down the sidebar uh, was a whole lot of like classified advertisements. Um, and intermingled through them were three or four. Uh, and we're talking about, you know, single column, one inch deep, um, Mount Hermon Lodge number seven, square encompasses, uh, meets on the second Tuesday, all soldiering brothers are invited. This is our address. This is our, wouldn't have been a phone number. Uh, this is, but, you know, this is how to contact us. So it's institutional advertising, getting the logo out there, making sure people know. If you did a survey, a street survey, and showed people the square encompasses, uh, I think this has been done fairly recently. Uh, there are 30% of, of the American public don't even know what Freemasonry is, don't, uh, uh, won't recognize that square and compass. They might say, oh, is that something to do with the Illuminati or the New World Order? Um, I used to give a talk about the Bavarian Illuminati. Yeah. I used to give a talk about the Bavarian Illuminati some years ago, and I opened it by saying, <clears throat> our potential members, 20-somethings, know more about the Illuminati and the New World Order than they do about Freemasonry. And I think that continues to be true. I do believe uh, uh, that that's actually a great opening, <laughs> that you know our, our potential members know more about it than, yeah. Uh, I... Um, I don't know about this this advertising thing. That it's it's one of these things that has been discussed many times in our jurisdiction, and <clears throat> I think um, through those conversations, we may look at changing the signage on our building to be more prominent, to stand out more, to uh, rather than being a little discreet and 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 withdrawn, right? Uh, because it was it used to be like it was flat up against. Our, our building, right? And we're talking about now we want to let's have it stand off of our building and be illuminated and, you know, bring attention to uh, our building, our organization, right? Um, let people know we're there because like you say, 30% of the population there won't know anything about us. Yeah. And I mean, if you look historically, there were uh, in Seattle, there's a, like the city of Seattle, there's at least two that I'm aware of, of those clocks on a, like on a, light pole out inside of a, of a lodge building that are just like a clock. And it says, I think one of them says like time for masonry on it. And, and there's the big square and compass in the middle, just sitting out in the middle of the sidewalk. And, oh, I want yeah. pictures of those. I have not seen those. <laughs> it's they're pretty cool, but they're, it's, it's not like the steam clock in Vancouver, but it's, it's, it's pretty neat. Um, but yeah, the, you know, why, obviously it's been done in the past to, to some, to some small degree, it's not recruiting per se, but it is, Awareness, as we were fly, saying. Fly in the flag. Nothing wrong with that. Exactly. 
uh, although that has been a major discussion in many jurisdictions over the last few years, no question. Well, you know, there, there is a really good plus to those conversations because uh, I believe it's our Grand Lodge had sent out in the last uh, couple of years um, some approved advertisements that we could put in the papers um, for really more for branding or marketing, right? But um, I think that that was a great idea that they've done because I know a couple lodges that did right away, they put them out in the paper and, and they did get a little bit of interest from them, right? Um, and I think that if the rest of us were to, you know, use those pieces and get them publicized and get them recognized, it would have a much better effect. But the, the point I wanted to make there was the Grand Lodge supported the idea of putting these things out there to build awareness. This, this was one of the initiatives, one of the first initiatives of our Community Relations Committee in 96, 1996. Really? Was that way back then to that? No. That only came out in the last few years. Well, and you know something? Uh, uh, so I designed those in 1996. That's why I can tell you that was the year that we put them out there. Uh, posted them to our website, let all the secretaries and DDGMs know. Every now and then, periodically, we remind them. Uh, we're now allowing them to do a lot of different kinds of advertising, as long as it is not uh, invitations to, to join. They are very much, you know, uh, hey, we're here. Come and talk to us if you're interested. Um, but it's amazing how we fail to communicate within the craft. Um, and uh, I may get some flack on this, but as far as I'm concerned, the big problem is our major way of communicating from Grand Lodge with the membership is through the lodge secretaries. We don't go directly to the members. And our lodge secretaries are volunteers. They have other things to do. And they uh, also have their own opinions. So a lot of communications from the Grand Lodge office, Grand Secretary's office, just never filters through. And there will always be that old guy with the dark blue apron in the corner who says, we've never done it that way. Uh, and will convince everyone else through sheer volume that, oh, I guess it's not really a program. You know, it's not something we're doing. We can talk about dark blue aprons a little bit if we want to talk more about myths. Yeah, we should. <laughs> we've never done it that way. Matt, you mentioned earlier uh, the three degree system or just our ritual in, in itself. Um, so yes, uh, 1717, we had a two degree system. We didn't split it off. We didn't hive off the third degree until 10 years later or so, for whatever reason. We're still a little unsure about that. Uh, the ritual changed radically, of course, uh, uh, when, uh, when the Irish turned up in London and the, and the English wouldn't let them in the lodges. And that gave us the ancients, which is more or less what the Americans, less than more, but what the Americans are using now. Um, and then they threw both of those out uh, and redesigned something else in 1813 for, uh, for England. Uh, and, you know, there's still an argument in England. Uh, this doesn't affect American Freemasonry, but in British Columbia, we permit four rituals, one of them being the emulation out of England. 
the emulation lodge in London claims that their ritual is what came out of that 1813 Union of Grand Lodge. Stability Lodge makes the same claim. <laughs> uh, and quite frankly, I suspect, Matt, if you were to read a, the ritual from your perspective as from an American ritualist, you wouldn't be able to tell the difference unless you did a word by word comparison. Uh, it, but nevertheless, there are differences in the words. Um, England in the 19, late 1968, I think, permitted lodges to remove the physical penalties from the obligation, as long as they were explained in a lecture after the install or after the obligation, they were explained in a lecture to explain the grips and tokens because they needed to have that context, but they were taken out of the physical, out of the obligation. Uh, that was, that was uh, permitted in the 18, in the 1960, 1968 or something like that. And I believe within a decade or so it was required. English lodges are not allowed to have uh, the physical penalties. England seems to be certainly in the last half a century or so far more responsive to public concerns than perhaps uh, North America has been in, in, in some of their other changes as well. Uh, but yes, the ritual wanders all over the place. I had someone in a lodge from up north ask me once about one of the signs used in the lodge. Uh, and he, he showed it to me and I was quite confused because it was not like the sign that I had ever seen in lodge. And I did, and I, uh, I did a little research and discovered that it was simply because there was one highly regarded senior member of the lodge who had advanced arthritis or whatever and couldn't make the proper sign. So everyone just started doing it the way he did it. <laughs> and I suspect that happens more often than we think. Uh, that sort of evolution, either because of that reason or because there's one person of a strong opinion and it's easier not to argue with that person and go along. It's, I mean, it's a, the ritual, especially in mouth to ear places where they don't write it down at all. It's a living thing. You know, it's, it's, if I forget a sentence or I, for, or I change a word or two or, or whatever, probably the gist is right, but it's, it's a living breathing thing. It's like English. It's a living breathing thing. Just because you say a word now, it doesn't mean it means the same thing it meant whatever, a hundred years ago. And I'm, I'm writing a history right now of the Grand Lodge of British Columbia in Yukon. We are at the moment uh, celebrating our 150th anniversary. Uh, the actual date is October 21st, I think. Um, and I have, at this point, I've titled it Chronicles of Change uh, because I can point out dozens and dozens and dozens of examples of how our jurisdiction administratively uh, ritualistically uh, and, and in just general practices have have evolved and changed. Every generation has come in and, and made its own, made it its own, and it made those kind of changes. So change is an important part of Freemasonry, while at the same time, I believe uh, the sort of men that are invite are in, are attracted to Freemasonry are attracted uh, to a certain conservatism. We don't like to see fast change. We want to think about it. 
I've said many times that yeah, Freemasons, even if not politically, although a lot of them politically, are tend to be conservative, like you said, like they they like things to stay the way they are, and that that uh, um, I mean, it's a great draw for you know, this is an institution that's existed for hundreds of years and and you know has changed somewhat along the years, but not as much as others. <laughs> and so that's exactly. one thing. On the other hand, you know, maybe there are ways we could change with the times that would would improve. Well, we have. We have. Time. Every generation has made changes. Yeah. Uh, and, and I plotted that in my jurisdiction. Changes in the ritual, changes in, in what offices we hold, what our regalia is, uh, what, what we permit our members to do. In some cases, I'm looking at something that I'm uh, saying, oh, well, this is something we've been, we've permitted for the last hundred years. You know, we changed it 50 years after we started. And my innate conservatism says, well, I'd like us to go back to what we were doing in 1871. We actually had, it didn't go anywhere, but last year, well, we didn't have an annual communication last year. Uh, we had a brother who brought forward a resolution to revert our constitution to the 1871 version. Uh, the Constitution Committee said, no, it's not gonna fly. We can't, that's way too vague. We can't just do that. Uh, but I suspect that he represents a group of people uh, who figure that we've made far too many changes over the years. And to a certain degree, I'll tend to agree with them in some, of, in some respects. Um, but we have a new generation of Masons out there now. You know, they are moving uh, into positions um, of authority, you know, masters of lodges, they're getting Grand Lodge rank, and they're in their late 20s, 30s, and 40s. These, these, are, uh, these are men who are going to be Freemasonry in a few years, so they're going to make it their own, for good or ill. Yeah, but for them to get anything passed through Grand Lodge, you have to have enough blue aprons in that group. It's interesting. Grand Lodge was originally designed to represent the lodges, not the individual brethren. And that meant each lodge had three representatives there, either their principal officers or their three proxies. But from 1871 on, we undermined that in this jurisdiction by giving past masters the vote. Oh, and they shouldn't be given the vote. The only people having a vote should be the three principal officers or their proxies, period. And yeah, they it really clearly directed to represent the will of their lodge. Yeah, I totally agree. I think that's where the, 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 it gets all skewed is because every past master can now vote. Well, now you're shifting the balance. There's and, a difference and, between conservatism and reactionism. Uh, and, and you get a whole bunch of past masters, past grand uh, lodge officers, and, and, and that's no longer just con uh, conservative. That's, that's reactionism. As a past master, I have to disagree. I think, yes, <laughs> and I have seen this over the years because I've been working in my grand secretary's office for 12 years now, and then previous to that, since '96, I've been in the library and archives. And, and I see this where a brother, past master, nice enough fellow, not necessarily that knowledgeable, but reasonably about the craft gets himself a dark blue apron and suddenly he's an authority. He hasn't come into my library and taken out a single book. You know, he doesn't know any more than he did five minutes ago, but suddenly now he's an authority. And younger brethren 
will accept that. He's got a dark blue apron and he's been around for a few years. So he must know what he's talking about. Oh, dear. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, you know, we, we were taught from a youth to respect our elders and, and you know, respect yeah. the hierarchy and things like that. So it's a natural thing for us to do that, um, and which, again, does cause that problem of uh, he really doesn't know what he's talking about, but I'm giving him the credit that he does, right? So, um, yeah, I find that kind of interesting. I had actually uh, maybe it's because I'm very active in my area, um, but I've had uh, many conversations about change and you know uh, how we can improve things in for the Masonic experience and so on. And of course, now I got everybody going. You know, really, if you want to affect any of those kinds of changes, you need to go and you know get into the Grand Line, get get in there in Grand Lodge and 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 do that. And it's like. Well, all the stuff I'm doing in my local area, I don't have time to do that. And they said, well, you can't really affect change. And I said, well, hang on a second. I'm a past master. I can go there and vote and I can affect change. <laughs> More importantly, and I don't think your average Grand Lodge officer does, or an elected officer, does really affect much change. Where you affect change, as you say, getting out there and voting, uh, something we keep trying to tell our citizenry, and they keep ignoring it, or half of them keep ignoring us. Um, but more importantly, people say, well, how can I make a change to the Constitution? Well, make a resolution at Grand Lodge. Uh, you know, the Constitution is very clear of how we make changes to our, our operations and our rules. And you do that um, through the committee structure and through through making resolutions to change the constitution and then convincing enough brethren that, that what you're doing is the right idea. That's that's how you do that. And I, uh, so I think we've gotten pretty far afield, but I'll keep going. We anyway. have. <laughs> <laughs> the, uh, the, way, the way that you affect change, I mean, there's, I agree, there, that is certainly an important way of doing that from the sort of top-down-ish, you know, passing Grand Lodge resolutions level. But doing what you're doing, Steve, is affecting change too. If your yeah. lodge is one of excellence and you have excellent men who are doing good works, that affects change. You know that spreads as well. You know, there's definitely a yeah, ugh, that good. There's a, here's another myth for you: <clears throat> that Grand Lodge is Freemasonry. Hey, thank you, thank you very much. No. <laughs> What exactly what you're doing, Steve, is Freemasonry. You know, what we're doing right now is Freemasonry. What we do when we turn off these cameras, hopefully, and, and go out uh, uh, and, and shovel our neighbor's walk. <laughs> In fact, I, well, I'm too old to do that now. Thank you very much. I'm just looking out at the snow there. But, you know, being a good neighbor, being a good father, being a good friend, being a good brother, taking the lessons of Freemasonry and putting them into practice, that's Freemasonry. The Grand Lodge structure <clears throat> has taken on a mythological proportion all of its own. It should have no other purpose than to keep track of the members, the membership, and be, and be able to um, confirm that someone's a member for another jurisdiction. That's, that's a big part of it. And to confirm certain standards of behavior and practice in the Lodge. That's why they give them the warrant. The lodges don't just get to start start up as mushrooms. They've got to, well, no, but don't get to start start up. They have to get a warrant uh, and follow certain practices. But the whole rest of of this 
monolithic juggernaut that is a Grand Lodge has nothing to do with Freemasonry, as far as I'm concerned. Is that a myth? It, it certainly seems that way. It's a, it's a, I agree. The Grand Lodge is, you know, we're, we're Masonry. We're not necessarily the Grand Lodge being Masonry, which ties into another, another aspect, I think, that, and that is that sort of, sort of what we were talking about with past masters, that, you know, that's the, that is the way to go. That if you're, a, if you're a real Mason, you have gone through the chairs and you've been master of your lodge and, and you can sit in the sidelines with your, your fancy past masters apron, that sort of stuff. And I know, exactly. And I know plenty of Masons who have been better Masons than I, for sure, and have have never done that, either because they didn't want to or because they're, they're not so good with the ritual or whatever their personal reason was, I don't know. But who, you know, that is Masonry just as much as me sitting in the East with a, a fancy hat and a gavel. That's that's definitely yeah. a myth I would like but to. I'm, I'm going to bet you looked really good doing that, though. Oh, should I go get my hat? It's right there. <laughs> <laughs> uh, my, I say my lodge, that, I was just going to say, I say all the time that my masonry and your masonry are not necessarily the same things, and that's okay. Yeah. They're, they're, my lodge is uh, coming up on its 75th anniversary. Uh, and some, uh, I guess, 15 years ago, for our 60th, I wrote a little piece to, to present. Uh, we had a banquet and all of that sort of thing. And I wrote a little history piece. And rather than listing all of the masters of the lodge and you know all of that sort of usual chronology that we pretend is a history, I talked about three members of our lodge who I believe had represented what we call the ideal of a Freemason. And the three of them had never taken any office. Uh, that's not true. One of them was chaplain for quite a few years, but uh, none of them had ever gone through the chairs. But the three of them, in my mind, just represented why we were here. Uh, and I'm going to re reinforce that for our 75th as well. That's awesome. And uh, on that note, I think that kind of winds up our, our uh, talk about the myths uh, for this episode. And um, I really do, uh, I really enjoyed this conversation. Um, I think that uh, our viewers and listeners will, uh, I think, get a lot out of this and enjoy it as well. Um, and uh, please remember to, you know, if you like our stuff, like it, share it, subscribe to it. Um, we are, are gaining numbers out there. We got 10,000 viewers on YouTube now, and we're really enjoying doing this for our, our audience. So, um, uh, on behalf of our panel, we thank you guys for listening to, to us ramble on about different things and, uh, um, you know, act like we know what we're talking about. And so for this episode, thank you. <laughs>